0: Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of Dressed Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed the History of
1: Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary.
0: Welcome dress listeners to part two of our series on Barbie fashion history. And if you haven't already, make sure and go back and listen to part one of this podcast, because this is where we learned all about the origin of Barbie, who was the brainchild of Mattel co-founder Ruth Handler. And we also learned about how fashion was foundational to Barbie's existence from day one. Not only did she debut as a teenage fashion model in 1959,
1: she had a fashionable wardrobe to match. And it is this interchangeable wardrobe sold separately that has always been in direct conversation with the changing tides of fashion. And this interchangeable wardrobe would also go on to make the handlers and Mattel billions of dollars. It also made Barbie a fide fashion icon.
0: And a Target. In episode one, you may remember, we also spoke about the Barbie paradox and this idea that she's always been simultaneously adored and the subject of controversy. And part of this ongoing love-hate relationship is Barbie's commitment to fashion and a very specific fashionable body ideal, it must be said, which, depending who you ask, is either her greatest strength or her greatest failure. And we know that this is not unique to Barbie because historically, women's participation in fashion has earned the ridicule of society for centuries. Yes, this is correct. Um, But what is unique in this case, Cass, is that Barbie is not a
1: woman she's a doll. She's an inanimate object, right? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not in our hearts. Of course, this just really points out the value that we, you know, place on this as a society that material culture is important and it's not to be dismissed. I mean, basically this this is entirely what this podcast is about. The importance, you know, socially and culturally of material culture aka fashion in our case but barbie is so much more than just a fashionable doll she is also a reflection of the time period in which she lives as well as the billions of children who have do and will play with her and as we will learn more about in this episode
0: also the adults who collect her And you probably remember, dress listeners, that we barely made it into the 1960s (laughs) on the first episode. So we have a long way to travel in terms of tracking Barbie's fashion evolution into the present day. So bear with us. But we can't move on from the 1960s without talking at least briefly about the relationship forged between Barbie and celebrity culture very early on. For instance, in 1967, fashion it girl Twiggy became the first celebrity to have a Barbie created in her likeness. But she would, of course, by no means be the last. I mean, everyone from Cher to Beyonce have Barbies. I mean, the list really goes on.
1: Yeah. And you may remember us mentioning Barbie fashion designer Carol Spencer in episode one. She began her 35-year career at Mattel in 1963. And she tells us in her really beautifully illustrated memoir, Dressing Barbie, that she was so inspired by Barbara Streisand's bedazzled and infamously see-through Arnold Scossey suit, which she wore to accept the 1969 Oscar for her role in Funny Girl, that she actually created a Barbie doll fashion in her likeness. And granted, Barbie's fashion was a yellowed suit. It was entitled Lemon Kick, but it is pretty, pretty sheer, just as was Barbara's at the time, which created a little bit of a scandal.
0: Yes, absolutely. And so much fab and fun Barbie fashion came out of the 1960s. I mean, April, we didn't even mention 1965's Sew Free Barbie. So that's S-E-W, which came from (laughs) Elliot Handler's idea that girls would want to create and decorate their own Barbie fashions. And also there was Color Magic Barbie from the 1960s. And her hair and clothes could change color when she was dipped into a magic chemical solution. I mean,
1: that gives me pause. The first thing I think of when I think of that is what was in this magic chemical solution.
0: (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) Barbie did continue her fun and fashionable trajectory into the 1970s when she adopted Hippie Chic. This can be seen in 1971's Barbie Victorian Velvet Floor Length. Ensemble, which was clearly inspired by Jessica McClintock's seemingly ubiquitous gunny sack dresses of the period, and
0: not even into the seventies cast. Like I remember those in the eighties when I was growing up. Oh yeah, and that would actually be a really fun episode at some point down the line. I think people have actually requested it many times, mm-hmm. and. Of course, Barbie being part of popular culture, she had to have Woodstock inspired Barbie Festival fashion, which came out in 1971. And before you say, but Woodstock was two years prior, remember dress listeners, that there is an 18-month lag between the conceptualization of Barbie's designs and the actual product hitting the shelves. So Barbie's festival fashion consisted of a headscarf with roughly with a roughly white laced peasant blouse, and it's worn under a button front vest and paired with a floral knee-length skirt over which is worn what appears to be a brown suede belt that matches, of course, her knee-high brown suede boots.
1: And you can't forget to mention the color of her matching headscarf and vest, Cass. It was pink. Pink is, of course, now synonymous with the Barbie brand today, but the association didn't really happen until the 1970s when it became more and more prevalent in the doll's packaging. And of course, pink has remained ever since Barbie's signature color. 1971 was a huge year for Barbie cast. That was also the year that gifted the world with Malibu Barbie, who with her tan skin, aqua blue nylon one-piece swimsuit, lavender sunglasses, and yellow towel, she really captured that kind of carefree spirit of the so-called California girl She was immensely popular, as we all know now, and Barbie designer Carol Spencer says that she really opened up a whole new world for the Barbie designers in terms of designing more relaxed, sporty, and brightly colored clothes.
0: Barbie's designs in the 1970s really continued to reflect a mix of high and low fashion. So where Malibu Barbie represented more casual clothing being worn to the beach and other summer activities... Barbie never forgot her high fashion inspiration. And in some of Carol's designs featured in her book, there are clearly designs that are inspired by the work of Yves Salt Laurent, for instance. And Barbie's creator, Ruth Handler, actually tells us in her memoir, Dream Dolls, that Charlotte Johnson, who you may remember, dress listeners, was the original fashion designer for Barbie. And actually, she remained the head of Barbie fashion design into the 60s and 70s. So Ruth tells us that Charlotte actually would travel regularly to the haute couture shows in Paris. So for inspiration, which I find so, so cool. I mean, what a perk of the job. Exactly. And while this conversation with Barbie and high
1: fashion would continue into the 1980s, her creator, Ruth Handler, would not, unfortunately. In 1975, almost 30 years after the Handlers first started their billion-dollar company, Mattel, they were forced out of their own company. And we're not going to go into this in too, too much detail here because there are plenty of other sources that do go into these details, including Ruth's own memoir, but also Robin Gerber's book, Barbie and Ruth. But the gist of this basically is that despite the so-called golden years of the 1960s, the 1970s were fraught with financial difficulties for Mattel. The company suffered huge losses, and this was a fact that the company executives weren't exactly forthcoming about with their shareholders. (laughs) Whoopsies. Um, There was a series of lawsuits from shareholders about book doctoring, and this sort of uh, misrepresentation was compounded by a government investigation. Basically, the handlers were both forced to resign because of their assumed role in the cover-up, although they did reportedly remain the company's primary shareholders.
0: Ruth always maintained her and Elliot's innocence, it must be said, and she says that she was not as involved in company operations during this period when finances were being misreported, and this was due to her unfortunate breast cancer diagnosis at the top of the decade. So she actually underwent a double mastectomy, which was apparently quite a radical operation at this time, and this all brought her, as she recalls in her memoir, into an incredibly dark place in her life. But believe me, dress listeners, Ruth did not stay there long. She picked herself up by her her boot or rather her bra straps. And she moved on into an entirely (laughs) new groundbreaking business venture because that's what she does. Exactly. Ruth
1: and this business were actually featured in a 1979 article entitled Women Who Make Millions. And she is quoted as saying, quote, when I was at my lowest ebb, I took stock of myself and said, hey, Ruth, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? What needs doing? And suddenly I knew the answer somebody had to come up with a totally new concept for artificial breasts. And basically, listeners, she went on to spend the next two years developing a breast prosthetic and a line of post-mastectomy bras for women with a company called Nearly Me. And at the time of the article, when it was published in 1979, um, her products from this line were being sold in 80 cities across the US. And this is actually not the end of Ruth's relationship with Barbie and Mattel. But more on that in a
0: bit. And what of Barbie in the wake of her fearless creator, Ruth's departure? I mean, for this insight, we again turn to Carol, who says there was definitely a corporate restructuring of Mattel in the 1970s. And Mattel really goes from being this design-driven company to a manufacturing profits-driven company, which we see time and again, right? Once people add shareholders mm-hmm. to the mix. And this resulted in the designers losing some of their artistic license that they had really been given under the handlers, and the structure only continued to become part of the corporate culture throughout the decade. And to cap off a decade that brought a sea of changes was the retirement of Barbie's other creator, Charlotte Johnson, who retired in 1980 after over 22 years heading the team which created Barbie Fashions, making Carol, who we have mentioned several times now, the most senior designer at the company. But all of this should not take away from the fact that the 1980s
1: were incredibly important and pivotal years for Barbie. Not only would this be the decade that Barbie would start her ascension into fashion icon status, this would also be the decade that Mattel expanded their representation and ethnic diversity of the Barbie line, however imperfectly at first. And this applied not only to Barbie herself, but also the people who designed Barbie's fashions.
0: To their credit, the handlers are actually given credit with hiring a diverse workforce from the beginning of Mattel. Robin Gerber in her book attributes Ruth's claim that, quote, she never thought about the racial makeup of her workforce to Ruth's own experience with anti-Semitism throughout her life. And in 1951, the handlers were even given an award for their, quote unquote, non-discriminatory practices by the historic civil rights organization, the Urban League. And Gerber quotes Elliot as saying, we hired black and brown people. It did not matter to us.
1: Case in point is Beulah Mae Mitchell, who worked at Mattel for 45 years. Beulah is the subject of and inspiration behind the documentary Black Barbie, which recently debuted this past spring at South by Southwest. And, And as of right now, the documentary is not available to download and view. So we had to rely on a recent article from The Independent that features some direct quotes from the documentary. But basically, Beulah went to work on the assembly line at the Mattel factory in 1955, um, which you may remember, dress listeners, is the same year that Ruth was finally inspired to create Barbie after her very fortuitous vacation to Switzerland. Quote, we loved Ruth because she was such a strong woman, Beulah says in the documentary. Quote, she went overseas and came back and wanted to make this doll with
0: Breasts and Beulah actually developed a personal relationship with Ruth, who she says valued her and her fellow workers' opinions. And Ruth actually consulted them about what they would like to see from Barbie in the future. And it was around 1960 that Beulah says that she requested Ruth to create a black Barbie doll, to which she replied, "We'll see." So it would actually be another eight years before this request was fulfilled. However, with the debut in 1968 of Barbie's friend Christie. And this was also the same year that Mattel helped to finance the Black-owned Shandana Toy Company created by civil rights activists Lewis Smith and Robert Hall. And they actually worked with Smith and Hall to provide not only capital, but factory training and supplies.
1: Through Shandana toys, Smith and Hall provided much-needed empowerment and community uplift vis-a-vis jobs to the Watts neighborhood in South Central Los Angeles. And it also provided an entire generation of young Black children with toys that look like them. The company, which operated into the 1980s, had a beautiful message. And in a 1970s interview, Lewis told the Los Angeles Associated Press that, quote, we believe that only by learning to love oneself can one learn to love others. Shindana believes that by marketing black dolls and games that both black and white children can learn and relate to and at an early age, the company can foster the spirit of what Shindana is all about, love.
0: And let's just say that Mattel could have really taken a lot of lessons out of Shandana's playbook (laughs) at this time. So for one, the diversity of Mattel's workforce did not really extend to their corporate offices. And this is something Beulah talks about. She, When she went to work there in the 1960s, when she moved into the corporate office, she says she was only one of two Black employees, but that slowly started to change. And for instance, in 1976, Lavinia Kitty Black Perkins would become the first Black fashion designer to design for Barbie.
1: Thanks to a 1991 1991- la times interview we know lavinia's barbie origin story lavinia was born in spartanburg south carolina and her love for fashion was instilled in her as a young girl she learned to sew from her mother and grandmother and then went on to earn a degree in fashion design from the los angeles trade technical college after which she worked as a fashion designer in la for six years before answering a mattel newspaper ad looking for a designer just like Carol's interview process of 15 years prior, Lavinia was given a Barbie and told to come back a week later with an original Barbie design, which for her was, quote, a floral print voile wall jumpsuit with full tiered legs and puff sleeves and a matching wide brimmed hat. Really stylish, she recalled in the article, almost like a garden party outfit. And as the article also tells us, the jumpsuit, it never went into production. Well, it did get her the job, though.
0: Yeah, and Lavinia would do incredibly well at the company. In 1985 and 1987, she received Mattel's Chairman's Awards, among many other accolades. Eventually, she was named Chief Designer of Fashion and Doll Concepts at Barbie before she left, which I believe was in sometime in the early 2000s. And Beulah says about Lavinia, quote, we were proud of her because she drove a sports car and she matched our black Barbie. We thought she was a black Barbie, the real black Barbie. And that actually is a reference to Lavinia's central role in the creation of the first Black Barbie doll, which finally made her long-awaited debut in 1980. So yes, Christy had debuted in 1968, but she was a friend of Barbie not a Barbie herself, and her fashions had been designed by Carol. And in the documentary, Lavinia actually talks about what a need there was at the time for, quote, the little Black girl to really have something she could play with that looked like her. And Beulah, of course, had made her request to Ruth 20 years prior to this. As with bringing Black Barbie to life,
1: Lavinia worked with a Black hair designer and a Barbie sculptor to create quote the total look of a black woman she adjusted her facial and skin and hair features accordingly lavinia says quote the trio came up with the short natural i had a short natural myself at the time made her lips a little bit fuller we made her nose a little bit wider end quote she also goes on to say i wanted her to be the complete opposite of barbie and the complete opposite of Christy, and that I gave her bold colors, bold jewelry, short hair, and a wrap skirt that could actually show skin. One of my favorite singers was Diana Ross.
0: My fashion that I did kind of looks like something that Diana Ross would wear, end quote. So needless to say, Black Barbie is really groundbreaking for a number of reasons, including the fact that she is a Black Barbie designed by Black creatives. And that's something that we continue to know today, right? I mean, is really instrumental in ensuring authentic and respectful representation. The same cannot necessarily be said, however, for Hispanic Barbie who debuted the same year. While the debut of Hispanic Barbie was undeniably important in terms of representation, it did so in what many saw as a racialized stereotype. So while Black Barbie was in conversation with like contemporary American fashion and Black popular culture, Hispanic Barbie's dress, which consisted of a white blouse, black shawl, a wide flared red skirt, well, it presented more as kind of like a trope through a white or at least non-Hispanic lens, and that trope has actually been used to exoticize Mexican and Hispanic women since at least the 19th century. Similar things can be said about subsequent, quote-unquote, ethnic
1: Barbie dolls, including basically all of the Dolls of the World collection, which was created in 1980, to cater specifically to the burgeoning adult Barbie collector's market. And while the collection was a bid to represent the global appeal of Barbie with different nationalities, it does so in a way that kind of overly generalizes incredibly diverse populations and in many cases plays into racially charged stereotypes. And this is most clearly demonstrated by the so-called Oriental Barbie of 1981.
0: As the first Asian Barbie doll, she is a step towards diversity, but the Barbie also simultaneously groups the incredibly complex identities and ethnicities of Asian peoples under this problematic quote-unquote Orientalist umbrella. And Asian American journalist Kelly cassulis addresses this in a fantastic article tracing the history of Asian Barbie, and we'll link to this in our show notes so you can read it as well. And she comments on the fact that Oriental Barbie's nondescript quote-unquote Asian-ness is problematic in that it speaks to an era and a continued phenomenon in which Asian Americans are inherently made to feel both foreign and all the same, end quote. Although Kelly does admit that this problem of representation is not inherent to Mattel, and she does say that Oriental Barbie was largely a product of her time.
1: In the following years, Mattel did course correct this a bit with country-specific Barbies, including Malaysian, Chinese, and Thai Barbie, but these were still in many ways reinforcing reductive stereotypes. As Casulas points out, quote, the Indian Barbie is Bollywood-ready and comes with a monkey friend, while the Chinese Barbie comes with a panda. And it's important to remember that the Dolls of the World line was actually created for adult collectors. It would be a decade after the release of Black and Hispanic Barbies before Mattel would put real advertising dollars into promoting them in 1992. to their youngest customers through TV and print ads. One article quotes Mattel executives as saying, quote, what we are finding is that ethnic consumers are not aware of the line. The best way to do that is to target them directly, end quote. Although that article also quotes Mattel as saying that they left out their Asian dolls, their Asian Barbie dolls out of these ads because the market was too small. So I don't know. What is the moral of the story here, Cass?
0: It's not just about representation. It's also about dollars. Right. Follow the money trail, right? (laughs) So representation is something Mattel is going to grapple with well into the 21st century. In 2015, Mattel produced Mexico Barbie as part of the Dolls of the World line, and it sparked a huge controversy with people citing it as fanning cultural stereotypes, much like Hispanic Barbie did. So these issues with representation extended not just to race, but to other categories like body types and disabilities. And this is something we're going to address a lot more as we get into the new millennia and beyond and we are headed that way full steam ahead but first a word from our sponsors.
1: Cass as you know we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year Mm -hmm. so you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
0: Welcome back, dress listeners. So, where in the 1980s, Mattel, however imperfectly, tried to bring greater diversity and representation to Barbie, it is also a decade that is important in shaping her as a fashion and feminist icon. So, well, maybe everyone won't agree with me on the latter topic because, dress listeners, you might remember (laughs) from episode one that Mattel and Barbie became the target of attacks by feminist organizations in the 1970s who argued that Barbie was promoting unrealistic body ideals and encouraging girls to become nothing more than housewives and vapid fashionistas. And complaints that are not entirely unfounded, but are not entirely true either. So back to that Barbie paradox we cannot stop talking about. It just comes
1: up again and again and again. (laughs) So while working to expand women's rights, certain segments of feminist thinking at the time felt women's participation in fashion was in direct opposition with their cause. However, we would argue that Barbie is a representation of both. Why can't Barbie, like her real-life counterparts, be both a feminist and fashionable? Remember, Barbie was in many ways made in the image of her creator, Ruth Handler, a hardworking, incredibly powerful, and fashionable woman who was one of the first female presidents of a major U.S. corporation.
0: And not just that, that corporation she built from the ground floor up. So Mm -hmm. not that Ruth or many women like her at this time would call themselves feminists, which is always so fascinating to me because this was a politically charged term in the 1970s. And somehow much to our dismay, April remains so today, especially as we are seeing repeatedly in response to the Barbie film.
1: Yeah. And I would like to speak to this point, if I may. Um, I would just like to point out that Feminism is simply the belief that men and women should have equal rights. And today that is extended to all humans, however one identifies. And, and, you know, the basis of this is that our physiological, biological makeup does not somehow make us inferior or superior to one another. That's it. That's all. That's the foundational (laughs) cornerstone of feminism. And I'm not really sure how this continues to be a sticking point for so many people. Um, you know, nearly 70 years after Ruth helmed one of the greatest toy companies of all time, we are still fighting for this simple definition of and the tenets of feminism to be embraced. So I'll get off my soapbox now. I can get back on later <laughs> if anyone wants to know more But what I have to
0: say. And I mean, we've talked about this. Ruth really made her way in what was at the time a man's world. And through Barbie, she demonstrated that girls could do that, too. And that message of empowerment extended past her time at Mattel and is demonstrated by 1985's We Girls Can Do Anything campaign. And featured within that campaign, which showed girls as everything from a gymnast to a scientist, was one of Barbie's most iconic dolls. And that is day to night. Barbie. And she was designed by none other than Lavinia Black Perkins. And actually, she was re-released in 2017 and, of course, brilliantly performed by Margot Robbie in her press tour recently. Just saying.
1: A nod to Mattel's expanded line of Barbie's Day-to-Night Barbie was issued as a black Barbie, a Hispanic Barbie, and a white Barbie, and was conceptualized as a chic but hard-working businesswoman by day. And her two-piece Barbie pink suit with a pink scarf and a matching white and pink hat. She had a briefcase and a calculator, which I think is adorable. Um, But really, in a few quick and easy steps, Barbie could be ready for evening. She threw off her hat and her suit jacket. She let down her scarf to become a skirt for her evening ensemble. And letting down the scarf revealed a glittery pink bodice underneath, and voila, her transformation was complete. So Day to Night Barbie was both a counter to her anti-feminist accusations and a direct product of the women's workplace revolution of the 1980s when women entered the workplace en masse.
0: And this is the part where I bring up one of my all-time favorite films, Working Girl from 1988. April, have you seen that movie? I love that movie too. Yeah. And of course it stars Melanie Griffith and she has that high teased hair and those shoulder pads. And this was really the era of power dressing as women sought to be taken seriously in the workforce. And just like Barbie, Melanie's character Tess's suited day look, however, was always replaced by sophisticated evening wear because Barbie always is going to be glamorous, let's face it. And Barbie's relationship to the real women moving into the workplace was acknowledged by 17 Magazine and their June 1985 issue, which talks about how Mattel had really transformed Barbie into a quote-unquote woman of the 80s and the article reads times have changed and so has Barbie. Today's young woman no longer plays cute and coy. She has a career. She's fit and trim. She dresses to be not so much sexy as successful and now so does the new day-to-night Barbie. So much like her flesh and blood counterparts,
1: Barbie is making a case that women can do it all and have it all and in the 1980s that also included having a designer wardrobe. Granted, Barbie's fashions had always found inspiration of the work of high fashion designers, but her fashion icon status was not secured by just looking to other designers for inspiration. It was also by being dressed by them. In February of 1985, Oscar de la Renta became the first of what would be and continues to be a very long line of fashion designers who have dressed Barbie.
0: Yes. And the Oscar de la Renta Barbie collection was celebrated at a Mattel-sponsored gala because, of course, and this was held at New York's Waldorf Astoria Hotel and reported on by the fashion press, Women's Wear Daily was there. And they commented that Mattel was at the time just a sidebar, well, not a sidebar, but just a note at this time was the largest single manufacturer of female clothing in the world creating 50 million pieces of Barbie clothing a year. And tw- at her 25th birthday in 1984, which was a year prior, an estimated 250 million Barbies had been sold. Wow. So <laughs> And as the article also tells us, the Oscar de la Renta Barbie designs were, quote, extravagant entrance makers adapted from his signature collection, end quote. And this is something that Carol confirms in Dressing Barbie, her memoir, saying basically that it was the Barbie fashion design team who like looked at Oscar de la Renta's collections and adapted them to Barbie's designs. And then he he would look at them and signed off on which would go to production.
1: Oscar is quoted in the article as saying, quote, the little girls who are going to be buying Oscar de la Renta To for Barbie will be my future consumers. This is a genius marketing move here, friends. (laughs) The dresses produced were in varying jewel tones, which is, of course, one of his signatures, you know, in pink and red and blue and purple. And they have a very 1980s silhouette with giant shoulders and ruffled hips. And especially charming casts were that the models at the evening event, this gala that was launching the Oscar de de La Renta line, well, they were wearing full-size, real-life versions of the same Barbie designs.
0: And something also very cool, April, in attendance at this event was an up-and-coming 10-year-old actress by the name of Drew Barrymore, who I have heard of. (laughs) Yes. I'm sure you have, and our listeners have too. (laughs) And a young upstart jewelry and fashion designer and a huge Barbie collector, but also, as I said, fashion jewelry designer, fashion collector, and historian, who I am ashamed to say I had never heard of until now which I am considering a travesty. And I'm dying to know, April, have you ever heard of Billy Boy Asterix? And the Asterix is actually part of his name legally.
1: Yeah. Yes, 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 I have. And I have because he is a major Elsa Schiaparelli collector. And as we all know by now, Scap is my favorite designer if I was forced to pick just one. Um, but but I do not know of its association between Billy Boy and Barbie. So de moi.
0: Yeah. So this is one of those stories that, of course, stress listeners sent me spiraling in a thousand directions and almost prevented me from finishing this episode on time because I kept debating if I wanted to make Billy Boy's story like its own episode as an addendum to the series. Because not only had I never heard of Billy Boy, but his place in not just Barbie history, but fashion and pop culture history is really deserving of its own episode. So let's just say Billy Boy has been omitted from more mainstream fashion and Barbie history narratives in a way that needs to be corrected. Because while Oscar de la Renta is the first fashion designer to officially license designs to Barbie... Those designs were sold separately from Barbie herself, and the accolade for first designer Barbie actually lies with Billy Boy because he is the first designer to not only bring his unique aesthetic and sartorial vision to Barbie herself, his name and signature are on the Barbie box. This is a Billy Boy Barbie. Mm-hmm. So, a very
1: brief bio on Billy Boy. He was born in Vienna, Austria in 1960 to very young teenage parents who could not keep him, and they put him up for adoption in an orphanage. He was later raised by his adoptive parents in New York City, but he was emancipated at the age of 15. And in 1975, he was living on his own and had already come to the attention of fashion editors because he was designing and producing an alternative couture fashion line out of his Park Avenue apartment. As the name of the line, Surreal Couture suggests, he was prone to the avant-garde and whimsical designs inspired by surrealism and its reigning queen, Elsa Schiaparelli, whom alongside other 20th century great couturiers, he passionately collected.
0: At 15 right? Mm-hmm. He's 15 years old at this point. And just a quick note, he's actually cited as being the owner of the largest private collection of Scaparelli garments in the world, owning something like 2000 pieces, April. In 2016, he produced a book entitled Frocking Life, Searching for Elsa Schiaparelli. And it's really part memoir, part homage to Schiaparelli, but back to Barbie. Or we're getting to Barbie. So he moved to Paris in 1982, where, mind you, again, he's just 22 years old, and he was actually tapped by the Palais Galliera to use his collection for the first official Elsa Schiaparelli retrospective.
1: For the exhibition catalog, he interviewed and subsequently befriended some of the most important names in fashion history, including Schiaparelli's daughter, Gogo, and her granddaughter, model Marissa Berenson, as well as Yves Saint Laurent, Hubert de Givenchy, André Corrège. Pierre Balman, many of whom said yes when he asked them in 1984, upon the occasion of Barbie's 25th anniversary, to
0: create custom haute couture designs for her based on their favorite looks from their archives. So how did we get from Scaparelli, the Italian darling of the Parisian haute couture, to America's billion dollar doll? As it turns out, Billy Boy was not just an avid collector of scaparelli. He also collected Barbie, who he'd fallen in love with as a child, a doll he'd found to be the embodiment of, quote, beauty, purity, and integrity, so much so that he reportedly at this time had a collection of over 10,000 Barbie dolls. Where does one store
1: those dolls? That's what I want to know.
0: They're only 11 and a half inches tall. <laughs> And he was a recent American expat and wanted to inject his favorite doll with the haute couture glamour she so truly deserved. With
1: some extra help from his friend and mentor and the 1950s superstar model Bettina Graziani, you can look her up if you don't know who she is, he convinced nearly 50 designers in total to create custom looks. So if you have seen that fabulous image of Ken and Barbie circling where Ken is wearing a skirt and where Barbie is wearing a green velvet cone bra dress. Well, you have Billy Boy to thank for making that happen. And of course, Jean-Paul Gaultier, who designed it at Billy Boy's request. Other designer contributions came in from Kenzo, Emmanuel Ungaro. Pierre Cardin, André Courrèges, and Yves Saint Laurent, who created 16 different looks reflecting some of his most iconic designs from the 1950s, including his trapeze dress for Dior, all the way to the 1960s Mondrian and Safari dresses, to a mini dress from his most contemporary collection.
0: Yeah. And actually, Carol writes about this wonderful experience she had in the 1960s when Charlotte and herself met Yves Saint Laurent in California. He was apparently there hosting a fashion show and luncheon in Hollywood. And she said they walked up and introduced themselves to him after the show and quote, his face lit up. Then he told us he always looked at our line to see what we were doing. I was simply (laughs) (laughs) dumbstruck. So just a reminder about the reciprocal relationship Barbie has with fashion. I mean, she inspires designers just as they inspired her fashions and this is no more exemplified than with her influence on billy boy and his influence on her
1: billy boy's haute couture barbie project very quickly caught the attention of the french branch of mattel mattel france who wanted to exhibit the designs alongside other dolls that tracked her evolution since her 1959 debut and thus the first retrospective of barbie was born, and not in her home state of California, or even in her home country of the United States, but actually in Paris, France, the home of Haute Couture. And the exhibit ended up including 300 dolls and was visited by 45,000 people in the very first week it opened in Paris, before going on to tour France on the TGV train, finally making its way to the U.S., debuting with much fanfare on February 10th, 1986 at the passenger ship terminal on pier 92. By this time the show had expanded now to include over 400 dolls dressed by internationally renowned designers not only French couturiers.
0: And if some of you are thinking dress listeners that this all sounds incredibly similar to the World War II era teatro de la mode or theater of fashion you are not mistaken. Even if the association was lost on the American press at the time, who never made this connection. So, of course, the Teatre de la Mode was the traveling exhibition of the post-World War II era, where 237 doll-like mannequins wearing haute couture creations of Paris's top designers traveled to raise money for the French fashion industry and promote it in the post-World War II era. And we fashion history lovers, of course, get this reference. And it was an intentional one made by Billy Boy, who named his exhibition Le Nouveau Théâtre de la Mode, or the New Theater of Fashion in Homage.
1: And the Barbie Billy Boy story does not end there. As alluded to earlier, out of this collaboration came not one, but two Billy Boy signature Barbie dolls. 1985's aptly titled Le Nouveau Théâtre de la Mode Barbie is the first Barbie created by a fashion designer and the first time the designer's name in the form of Billy Boy's signature appearing on the box. And this Barbie is equally significant because of what she wore, which was a long sleeve black silk crepe dress with a chunky gold jewelry. This was based on Billy Boy's own creations. He was also at this time, a well-known jewelry designer with his line surreal bijou. She had on black sunglasses, a la Billy Boy and heels complete this design for Barbie. Billy Boy certainly placed his signature literally and figuratively on Barbie, who, coming in a black box, stood in clear contrast to Barbie's signature pink packaging that was already well-established by this point.
0: Yeah, and actually, I was initially very confused about this collaboration and how Mattel would suddenly allow this young, bold, avant-garde designer into Barbie's ranks, especially right on the heels of an arguably safer choice of Oscar de la Renta. And it makes a lot more sense when you learn Barbie was created to commemorate the touring retrospective of the same name. And I believe actually that she was sold as part of the tour. And in celebration of this special event, Mattel found it fitting to ask the designer responsible for creating said event himself, a lot of designer to design a limited edition Barbie because only 10,000 of these Barbies were actually created and they're all numbered on the back. In further contrast to the Oscar de la Renta designs, the Barbie was
1: sold exclusively in Europe. And she was geared not towards children, but towards adults, to collectors like Billy Boy, who had at least since the 1970s, really begun to emerge as an increasingly visible consumer market for Barbie. Billy Boy did design a second Billy Boy Barbie for the American market in 1986. Her name was Feelin' Groovy Barbie, although unlike her French counterpart, she was not a limited edition. And as far as we can tell, they were marketed to children, although she was a bit pricey, like around something like $70 today, but she was no less fabulous than her haute couture counterparts. She was wearing an iridescent wrap coat over a deep, slinky pink dress. And
0: 1986 is the year that has perhaps the most surprising turn of events in the Billy Boy Barbie story. And that is because it turns out that the final portrait that Andy Warhol created in the year before his death, he passed away in 1987, was none other than Barbie. Barbie. And he actually did it at the request of his muse, none other than Billy Boy. Apparently, Andy was constantly asking Billy Boy to paint his portrait. And Billy Boy actually recounted this to the BBC in 2015, that quote, out of annoyance, I said to him, well, if you really want to do my portrait, do a portrait of Barbie because Barbie, c'est moi. He, Andy, (laughs) took it literally. He took a Barbie that I had given him and turned it into a portrait and called it portrait of Billy Boy, end quote and gifted it to Billy Boy at the debut of the new Theater of Fashion Exhibit in America in 1986. In 1988, Billy Boy
1: published Barbie, Her Life and Times, which was the first book to chart and analyze Barbie's history her relationship to high fashion and her relationship to the times in which she lived. In addition to being a history of Barbie, it also features the dozens of fashion prototypes. He personally sketched and produced for Barbie that were not included in the exhibit, nor were they ever manufactured by Mattel. Sadly though, Billy boy's relationship with Mattel did not survive that decade. By the end of the 1980s, Billy boy had announced his breakup with both the company and the doll
0: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what happened, so uh, more digging for sure, but we do know that Billy Boy is not happy, ultimately, with the quality of his Barbie dolls once they were actually produced by Mattel. I mean, he was bringing haute couture tastes and expectations to a mass-produced doll, and this time Mattel was just not ready to invest in making higher-quality dolls. And the rift with Mattel was actually enough, apparently, to completely disillusion Billy Boy with his beloved Barbie. And he is repeatedly quoted at this time as basically calling her a a vapid bimbo who is Demo Day. And this (laughs) might have actually, (laughs) now that I've done a little more sleuthing, have contributed to his erasure from Barbie fashion history. Case in point, in M.G. Lord's book which is called Forever Barbie. She only mentions Billy Boy very briefly. And it's basically to say that he really pissed off Barbie collectors with his very public renouncements of her.
1: It is a little bit of a sad story. Uh, But we must say that his breakup with Mattel might have also been a bit in service to his next venture, which was the creation of his very own toy company and his very own anatomically correct high fashion doll whose name was Medvani and um, apparently Medvani adhered to all of his very high standards.
0: Oh yeah. And look these dolls up or go to, I put a link in our show notes, dress listeners, because they are fabulous and they are jaw-droppingly beautiful. There is so much more to say as well about Billy Boy's story and not just his, but his partner in life and work, his husband, Lala J.P. Lestrade. And I'm really hoping, actually, that they might come on the podcast in the future. So stay tuned. In the meantime, like I said, head to our show notes for links to both Billy Boy and Midvani websites where there's a wealth of information and just fantastic images. Billy Boy's contributions to Barbie's fashion history are undeniable. And he really set the standard for a relationship between Barbie and high fashion. And not just that, but also Barbie high fashion and adult Barbie collectors that would expand exponentially in the 1990s which if you haven't guessed us listeners is where we are headed next in part three of this episode. <laughs> I did, it, did again, it again. April. <laughs> <laughs> I tried really hard, but I grossly underestimated just how seismic this relationship between Barbie and fashion was, or at the very least, I overestimated my abilities to fit all of that research into only two episodes. So, one more uh-huh. coming your way
1: yes yes <laughs> on thursday and you're not going to want to miss the conclusion of this three-part barbie series which takes us up into the present day because while billy boy might have created the first designer barbie she would not be the last basically all of fashion's biggest names have also designed for her from terry Mugler to alexander mcqueen to Ray Kawakubo. and in part three we're also going to consider the myriad of ways that barbie has transcended her toy status to become a truly global phenomenon? And what exactly does that mean for the world in which she lives and also for ourselves? And those answers and more are coming your way on Thursday.
0: Well, that does it for us today. Trust listeners, may you consider the meanings embedded in the things you own and the clothes you wear next time you get dressed. And you're definitely going to want to check out our Instagram for images and reels accompanying this week's episode, which is at dressed underscore podcast. And you can look up hashtag dressed three hundred nine, dressed three hundred ten, and dressed three eleven. We started doing these hashtags, can't so you can't stop. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So we started doing these hashtags for our episodes that you can go back and connect uh, the uh, podcast with the images on our Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook at dress Podcast without the underscore and on our website, DressedHistory.com. And of course, you can always write to us to say hello at our new email, hello at DressedHistory.com. More Dressed and more Barbie coming your way on Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media.